What is the worst that could happen? You knew when you came tonight that this was not going to be light. But ask a woman, what is the worst thing that could happen? And she might say something like, your brand new truck gets into a fender bender. Or you get a tick bite and you find that suddenly you're allergic to red meat. Or Patrick Mahomes tears his Achilles and is out for the season. Wait a second. This is the man's list. (laughs) Ask a woman, what's the worst thing that could happen? And you'll get an answer more like, my husband leaves me for someone else. Or my best friend betrays me. Or all my friends get married and I'm the last one single. Or I fall into a deep depression and I can't get out. Or my kids move far away, taking my grandchildren with them. Or I am diagnosed with an incurable disease. Or my child is diagnosed with an incurable disease. I could go on, but you get the point. When we say, what's the worst thing that could happen, the answer is going to be something we don't even want to think about. Because it's going to be some kind of suffering or grief or loss that's deep. And by definition, suffering is unpleasant, and we all try to avoid it. Now, I am not the expert in this room on suffering. And I am not sharing with you lessons that I have mastered by any means. In fact, it's a little terrifying to give a message like this because you don't want to be tested on it. But I wrote this talk during a time when one of the worst things was happening. And so what I want to do tonight is bring you to a portion of scripture that helped me through that dark valley. The book of Job gave me a sort of roadmap for getting through the worst things when they happen. So let's pray first, and then we'll get started. Father, you know every woman in this room, and you sovereignly brought every one of us here tonight. Lord, you know which of us are hurting and need comfort. You know which of us are fearful and need courage. You know which of us are in blessedly peaceful times, Lord, and which of us need to be preparing our souls for future trials that will come. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you make your word alive to us tonight and you draw us close to the heart of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to survey the whole book of Job, all of it. And we're going to just look at three phases of Job's suffering. We're going to look at the wrestling, the reckoning, and the resting. The wrestling, the reckoning, and the resting. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that it opens, and Job is this very wealthy, very successful, super well-respected man in the ancient Near East. Kind of like, probably like a local chieftain of some sort. And... He is not just a rich and powerful man, but he's also a righteous man. In fact, when God describes him, he says, There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. But in spite of this, in the first two chapters of this book, Job's wonderful, charmed life just completely falls apart. In the course of one day, he learns that all ten of his children have died. He learns that lightning struck from heaven and burned up his flocks. 
He learned that a bunch of his servants have been killed. He learned that he's been pillaged by bandits. It's just one thing after another is happening to Job in this one day. So when we think, what's the worst that can happen? Like, like this is it, right? This is it. And none of it was his fault. Remember, Job is the good guy. God pointed that out at the beginning. Job is the good guy. He's going along doing everything right, and then, bam, out of the blue, his whole life just falls apart, suffering beyond all of our imaginations. And his initial response to all this is just incredible. In chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Then it gets worse. Job now develops these painful sores all over his body. So he's in pain and misery, with no hope of getting better. His breath turns foul. His body stinks like he's like a living corpse. His wife even turns away from him. Street children are mocking him. And finally, his wife looks at him and says, curse God and die. Okay, now this is definitely the worst, right? No children, no wealth, no respect. Everything he had and held dear is gone. Yet still his response in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, if the book ended here at chapter 2, this would be the lesson. Sometimes really bad things happen in life, but you need to be like Job, who in suffering praised God and never sinned. End of story. Well, thankfully, the book does not end here. It doesn't end with chapter 2. In fact, chapters 1 and 2 are just like a prologue to what the book is really about. Because the rest of the book is Job's struggle to understand the way God had treated him. In the initial moment of loss, Job was able to just hold his tongue and say, this is God's will, what can I do but accept it? But not for long. We see just a few verses later the beginning of his wrestling with God. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job wishes he had never been born. And as you go on in chapter 3, he wishes, he's openly wishing that God would take his life. If my life is going to be like this, will you not just let me die? You wouldn't treat a dog this way. And so begins the very real, very raw struggle, the wrestling before God. 36 chapters of wrestling. This is a long book. This is one of the long books in the Bible. And there's a reason why it's so long. Because learning to live with grief is not a quick process. There is no Hallmark card version of the message of Job Sympathy for your loss. God is still good. Trust him. Move on. Deep griefs are not accepted and dealt with like that. 
And even for a truly righteous man like Job, who loves and fears God, there is a messy wrestling and questioning and even a challenging of God. And this is a better picture of what it looks like in our lives when disaster strikes. There are some griefs that we will carry with us all our lives. And there are some tears that will not finally be wiped away until we see Jesus face to face. That means we carry some for a very long time. And that's why this book is so long. Because in a fallen world, grief is something we live with, not something we get through. Now, in Job's wrestling, he's going to be asking two questions, and these are the two big questions of the book. Is God just, and is God good? Now, we all know the Sunday school answers to those questions, right? Yes, God is just, God is good. And Job knew that too. But when we suffer, the right answer doesn't always feel right. And this is where we see Job's brutal honesty, because he actually says out loud the things that we hardly dare to think. Now, if you lived any amount of time in this world, you know bad things happen to people. And you know that bad things happen to God's people, right? We're on the prayer chain. We hear the requests. We read, we read the news. We know how it goes. And yet we still affirm God is good until the bad things happen to you. Job knew bad things happened to good people. He knew that. He'd lived in this world a while. But never before had those things happened to him. Not like this, anyway, right? And it shakes everything that Job knows. So first he questions God's justice. Now, by any measure, his treatment does not seem fair, right? Listen to how he speaks. Chapter 9, verse 17. He's talking about God. He said, he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Verse 20, though I'm guiltless, he declares me guilty. I am guiltless. And then in verse 22, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. It gets worse from here. Fast forward to chapter 19 where he says, know then that God has wronged me. He has closed his net around me. There is no justice. Fast forward again to chapter 21, where Job looks around him and he says, Why do the wicked still live, continue on, become very powerful? Their descendants are established with them in their sight. Their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and the rod of God is not on them. So not only is the righteous one suffering, but he says, The wicked are not. What kind of justice is that? At my old church in California, there was a godly, devout couple. They served God with everything they had. They gave to the church. They were totally sold out and devoted to the Lord. And they wanted children. But they were not able to conceive. So through some medical intervention, they had a number of failed pregnancies and finally had one baby girl. But it was complicated And this baby girl was born with profound handicaps. We're talking something like 20 surgeries in her first seven years of life. Major surgeries. Meanwhile, into our college group, Dave is a college pastor there, 
There wandered a 17-year-old girl with a drug habit and a partying lifestyle. She was just trouble on legs. And you guessed it, she's pregnant. And without even trying, she gave birth to a perfectly healthy, beautiful baby girl. No father in the picture, no ability or willingness to care for this child long term. So how does this faithful couple over here look at that and say, God is just? Of course they questioned. It doesn't seem fair. Second, though, Job is questioning God's goodness. Job has this building sense that God is not on his side. So he says in chapter 7, verse 19, Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? He sees God as dangerous, as someone who can't be trusted. Right? It's like, He sees God, and he looks at him like the Greek or the Roman or the Egyptian gods, right? Where they kind of sit in their heaven, whatever it is, and and look down and play with the lives of men for fun, right? Like chess pieces. And he looks at God, and he's like, he might be just like that. The best I can hope for is to just lay low and be under his radar so he doesn't notice me and mess up my life. Not only that, 9.22, he says, If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Who mocks the despair of the innocent? That's not a good God. It gets worse. In 10.16, he says, Should my head be lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion. He carries forward this imagery into chapter 16, verse 9. His anger has torn me and hunted me down. He's gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary, that's God, splits me open, glares at me. God is his adversary. God is hunting him like a lion. Verse 12, without mercy, he splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall onto the ground. Okay. Definitely questioning God's goodness. Finally, in chapter 30, verse 20, he says, I cry out to you for help, but you don't answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. See, when we're suffering, knowing that God is all-powerful and sovereign, that's not necessarily a comforting thought. Because if he's in control of everything, and if he can do anything, and he chose this, what does that say about him? Back in the summer of 2020, I was in a really dark place. I had been suffering from COVID since the beginning of April. This was right when it all started. And it would not let up. It was affecting my body, and it was affecting my mind. So my hair was falling out, my lungs were damaged, I couldn't sleep at night, I was in constant pain. I was about to have a hysterectomy because a whole bunch of tumors had been growing like crazy inside of me ever since I'd been sick. But worse than this, worse than all of this was the depression. Every day was a sad day. I couldn't think clearly. I had to talk myself into getting out of bed in the morning. Before there was even time for a conscious thought, my first thought was always, oh no, I'm awake again. Scripture, when I read it, seemed lifeless and hollow, almost a mockery. 
And when I prayed, it was like my prayers bounced back from the ceiling and hit me. Smacked me across the face. Now, none of these things would be terrible to endure for a day, right, or a week, or even a month. But when it goes on and on and on, and there's no end in sight, and you have no idea, is this just the way it is from now on? We didn't know. So one day, I went on a long walk out in the country alone, specifically to meet with God, the God who had been so silent, the God who had not helped me in this. And I was begging him to show himself to me in some way because he seemed so silent. So I went out by myself, middle of the country, and I was walking along and praying and trying to run through what I could remember of the Sermon on the Mount in my fuzzy mind. And remember, I'm out here to meet God. And suddenly, a vicious dog jumps out and attacks me. Now, when I got away from the dog, it was the last straw. I actually said out loud to the sky, God, you say that you are a good father and you give your children good things, but I have asked you for bread and you have given me stones. I asked you for a fish and you've given me a snake. So either I'm not your child or you are not much of a father. I know. It's blasphemous. But the truth is, suffering is profoundly disorienting. It can make us question ourselves and everything we've ever known. What have I done to deserve this? Can this God be trusted? Can he? If he loves me, why would he treat me this way? I wouldn't do this to someone. We read the memes online about how God's always with us. We know the poem, Footprints in the Sand, about how Jesus carries us through our trials. We hear quotes like, in the cellar of affliction, we can find God's choicest wines. But sometimes when you're in the pit, we feel more like Job. He says in 23 verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I can't perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. In the darkness, we cannot always find God. Our trials do not always draw him close to us. Sometimes we don't sense his presence. Sometimes we just feel like he's abandoned us, forsaken us, left us there in the slew of despond all alone. And as Shakespeare says, who alone suffers, suffers most. Now, in our sane moments, we don't think this way, right? And it's easy for a non-sufferer to to listen to this and say, but you weren't alone. God was with you the whole time. Your prayers were not hitting the ceiling. He always hears us. You were believing lies. You were sinning. You should have thought on what's true. You should repent. And that's all true. And it's also what Job's friends told him. Now, I know we live in Kansas, but... Think with me of the last time you went outside of Kansas and you saw a mountain. Now, from a distance, mountains look bluish or purplish, right? They always look blue or purple, right? Purple mountain majesty above the fruited plain. But when you get closer to a mountain, you see they're not blue. 
They're like brown with green trees, like everything else, right? But still, from a distance, even when you know that the blueness is just an effect of the light, still from a distance, they are blue. That's not your imagination. They are blue. As C.S. Lewis says, the fact that they look blue 15 miles away is just as much a fact as anything else. When you're suffering, your feeling of being alone is real. When you're suffering, your feeling that there is no future is real. The sense of abandonment is real, even when you know that it's not true. And God knows this. He understands our suffering. And he does not despise us for it. In fact, what's amazing is in a book like Job, you see that in scripture, God gives us space to wrestle with our suffering. To experience it and name it and even cry out and say it. These are all scriptures. How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? My God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer. Or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Habakkuk, the Psalms, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Job. All of these give us pictures of saints, godly people, who cry out to God and say, I know you say you are good, but it doesn't feel that way now. And they're not condemned for it. God always wants us to take those feelings to him like Job did. He wants us to wrestle, not to stuff and not to pretend, but to wrestle with him. And after 36 chapters of Job wrestling with this silent God, it was time for the reckoning. So we're fast-forwarding to chapter 38, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And we're like, yes! Finally! Finally, God's going to come and give Job some answers. Finally, he's going to comfort him. Finally, he's going to tell him all the things that actually happened back in chapters 1 and 2. Job, it wasn't me who attacked you. It was Satan. He's your enemy. Job, your suffering is actually winning a cosmic war against evil. But he doesn't say any of those things. Instead, he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Okay, at this point, the reader is like, whoa, 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 what? Turns out God did not come to give Job answers. God came to ask Job questions. And he runs through lots of them. Did you make the earth? Do you control the weather? Do you provide for all of the animals? Do you know how to run the universe? God came to remind Job of who he was. It's God who hems in the oceans. God who holds the stars in place. God who makes the sun rise every morning. God who holds the storehouses of snow. It's God who feeds the lion. God who teaches the mountain goat how to have a baby. 
It's God who makes the ostrich. And he goes into great deal, detail about the ostrich. God, not Job. So he goes on like this for chapters, two chapters of questioning. And finally, Job's like, mea culpa, right? 40 verse 4, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Okay, he's like, God, I get it. I will stop complaining. But that's not enough. It wasn't enough for Job to remember that God was all-powerful, right? Because that was not his question. Remember, what were his questions? Is God just and is God good? One of the big problems in the book of Job is that people are constantly thinking that they understand justice and goodness. We are people, right? We do this too. Job's friends certainly thought they had a handle on it. So Eliphaz sums it up way back in 4.8 when he first starts talking and he says, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So like his theology in a nutshell is bad things don't happen to good people. So it's really a pretty simple little formula. Bad things happen to people who sin. Bad things just happen to Job. Therefore, it must be that Job has sinned. He's getting what he deserved, just like everyone else. And since Job shared that same basic worldview, his formula is something like this. If God is just, the innocent will never suffer. I am innocent, and I am suffering. Therefore, God is not just. They thought they understood what just meant. So God tackles this issue head on in chapter 40, verse 6, and he says this. He says, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Verse 11, can you look on everyone who is proud and make him low? Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand, hide them in the dust together, bind them together in the hidden place? Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. He says, Job, you don't even know what justice in a fallen world looks like. When you have figured out how to perfectly punish all sin and restrain all evil in a world where people have agency, then you can give me lessons. We can't even figure out human justice, let alone govern the whole world. Is God just? God defines justice. God's character is what tells us what justice is. It is impossible for God to be unjust. Impossible for him to act unjustly. But is God good? Now he goes into this long description of the behemoth and the leviathan, which is like a dinosaur and a sea serpent. And he describes their strength, and their beauty, and you're reading, and you're thinking, why? But he has a point. Job, can you restrain these creatures that I've made? No? Do you even know why they were made? Do you know that they're part of what I call good? No? Then how can you expect to know the whys in your own life? 
See, we, get, we got a peek behind the curtain back in chapters one and two, right? We know why this all happened. We know that Satan was trying to prove that Job wouldn't serve a God who allowed him to suffer. But this was knowledge that Job did not have, that he could not have. And here's the crazy part. Even when God comes and speaks to Job for like chapters, he still doesn't tell him. He does not tell him why. In 41 verse 11, he says, Who then is it that can stand before me? Who is given to me that I should repay him? Whatever's under the whole heaven is mine. God owes nothing to anyone, including an explanation for what happens in our life. He doesn't owe us an explanation. Now, Job's friends thought that they were helping him. Job, I mean, obviously, buddy, You've, you must have done something really, really bad. We'll give you some suggestions. And the reason we want you to acknowledge that is so you can confess it so that then God will stop punishing you. And we all think this way all the time, right? Like, this bad thing is happening. God must be punishing me for something. So if I just stop that thing, then my child won't have cancer anymore. My husband will finally get a steady job. My arthritis will ease up. But that's not how it works. In the final chapter, God totally rejects this flat out. And he turns to Eliphaz, the Temanite, and he says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Their theology is rubbish. He's like, no. No, things are not that simple. You can't figure me out. The fact is, God didn't want Job to know the reasons for his suffering. If he wanted him to know, he could have told him. God wanted Job to trust him without knowing why. We're always looking for explanations for why good or bad things happen to us. So we're always looking backwards, like looking for a connection between something we did and something we're now experiencing to try to explain what's happening in our life. But when the Bible addresses the sufferer, it's usually looking forwards. Not what did I do to deserve this, but what does God want me to do now? And how is he going to use it in my life? The purpose of our suffering in the Bible isn't found in its causes, but in its results. Elizabeth Elliot taught me not to ask God, why is this happening to me? Because in her very blunt way, She says, the answer to that question is frankly none of your business. God didn't explain himself to Job, and he certainly doesn't have to explain himself to me. When we're suffering, we don't need explanations. What we need is what Job got, which is a bigger vision of God. Being reminded of who he actually is. Remembering that his creation is so much bigger than I am. His plan is so much bigger and more intricate and more complicated than what's happening to me or that I could ever even understand. Who am I to demand that he explain himself to me? Faith says it's enough to know that God has a purpose in this, even if he never shows me what it is. Now, at this point, Job could have chosen to keep fighting. He could have said to God, That's not good enough. You owe me answers. 
He has certainly said this before, but he doesn't say that now. Instead, he humbled himself, and in 42 verse 3, Job gives God his final reply. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He admits with no qualifications, I was wrong. And his repentance leads to the resting. In his suffering, Job did sin. He did find fault with God. He questioned his goodness and his justice. He accused him of wrong. He shook his fist at God and what he saw as his bad plan, just like we do. And his soul was in turmoil the whole time. God knew that the most important thing for Job wasn't getting answers. The most important thing for Job was getting right with God, getting back to his rightful place as a creature under his creator. Returning to a life of faith, remembering that we don't judge God, but that he judges us, and knowing that whatever God ordains is right. We all have ways of putting God on trial, just like Job did, of holding God at arm's length when we think he cannot be trusted. Let's say you or a loved one has gotten a diagnosis and it's bad. It's a bad one. What do we do? A lot of times, we'll start to put up a fight in our heart. We accuse God of tricking us, of keeping us from discovering it on time. We think back over all the ways he could have helped us earlier. We refuse to accept it. We say, this can't be. Not today, Satan. Our prayers are all about, God, you have to bring healing. You have to fix this. And the only thing we'll let our friends talk about is how we're going to fight this, we're going to beat this, we're going to overcome. And when we do this, what we're doing is we're trying to avoid the crushing weight of sorrow that we see hovering just above our heads and that we think will destroy us if this is really true. We don't want God to be with us in the valley of the shadow of death. We want to stay up on the mountaintop. Thank you very much. So we hold despair at bay. We don't want to say the words because that would mean we've accepted it. That would make it real. That would make it true. And we picture ourselves like Gandalf standing on the bridge before our trial and declaring, you shall not pass. But what we're really doing is we're holding up our little sword before God and we're saying, my will be done. It is not okay for you to allow this thing in my life. You cannot take my child. You cannot let this be cancer. You cannot. And we wonder why our prayers don't bring the promised peace that passes understanding. Just like Job, we can't find rest in our sorrows until we lay down that sword. He can't comfort us until we stop kicking against him. When I was a little girl right around four years old, I remember one time I fell off my trike and I bit it bad and I scraped up my knee badly enough that I still have a good scar there to this day. 
And I remember my mom came and scraped me off the sidewalk and, and tried to hold me in her arms on our porch and comfort me. But I was so enraged at that trike for betraying me. And I was so convinced that if I stopped screaming, the pain would overwhelm me and kill me that I kept yelling at the top of my lungs. I was a very dramatic child. (laughs) My mom was, she's a very good mom, holding me and trying to comfort me and probably whispering in my ear, it's okay, sweetie, mommy's got you, it's okay. If she was, I couldn't hear it at all. I was too busy screaming out the pain, determined that that was how I was going to get through this. And so even in my mother's lap, I had no comfort. It was a battle. She was willing, but I was not. We cannot rest in God until we have stopped fighting against him. Until we lay down our sword and we say, thy will be done. Now please help me, Father. And he will. Because it turns out he is good. His good is better than our good. We want good things, but he wants to give us the absolute best. Jesus said that the very best life, he calls it the abundant life, is found in knowing him and in the God who sent him. But what does it mean to know Christ? Well, Paul puts it this way. It means knowing the power of his resurrection, right? We're all on board with that. And the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. We want him to give us long life and health and prosperity and relief, but he wants to give us something better. He wants to give us himself. What happened to Job? Losing children and wealth and status and friends, as terrible as all that was, is actually not the worst that could happen. The worst thing that could ever happen to any of us is to be abandoned by God. And only one of his children ever experienced that. God chose suffering. In eternity past, he planned his own suffering. The father planned to give up his only son to torture and death to punish him in the place of his enemies. And Jesus the Son, with full knowledge, chose suffering. Job was righteous, but Jesus was perfect. Job's friends said cruel things to him. Jesus' friends abandoned him. Job lost a lot. Jesus died with nothing. Job felt alone in his suffering. Jesus actually was alone, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he do that? Why would he choose that knowingly? Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us. And so he chose to suffer for our sake. He chose to experience the worst that could happen. So you would never have to. A God who would do this for us is both just and good. Good beyond our wildest imaginings. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. 
will he not also with him freely give us all things? Yes, suffering is miserable. It strips us down. It brings long, sleepless nights, tossing and turning in our beds with thoughts we cannot put to rest that lead us to ask, why even get out of bed in the morning to a world without my husband or my child or another day of chronic pain? But even in the darkest night of the soul, when our hearts have no earthly hopes, we have something that Job didn't. We know Christ crucified for us. We know that Christ rose from the grave and that we will rise, that we will see an end to our suffering one day and experience glory, a glory so heavy, Paul says, that we can't even imagine it. And we'll be reunited with all those in Christ that we've lost. God himself suffered for us, and sometimes he does allow us to suffer so that he can give us more of himself. And so he can make us more like Christ. Now, suffering does not automatically make us more godly. There are plenty of sufferers who turned into bitter, complaining old women. And I know I don't want to be that. And I don't want that for any of you. Tim Keller says, suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse person than you were before. It does not automatically improve your character. What you do with it makes the difference. Okay, I've been sailing exactly one time in my life, like real ocean sailing, in an itty-bitty yacht, like barely qualified as a yacht, that one of my friends owned off the coast of California and Mexico. That's where I grew up, California. Now, I know next to nothing about how it all worked. I was just really along for the ride. But I asked questions. And I do know one thing. Weather matters. We all prayed for perfect weather, which means clear skies, peaceful seas, and a steady, gentle wind. And that's about what we got. My friend explained that if there's no wind, you're not actually sailing. You're drifting. And if there's too much wind, you have a storm. And no sailor likes storms. They always try to sail way around a storm or else just be in port and avoid it altogether. But sometimes you're out there and a storm comes up and you're caught in it. And you're very unhappy because storms are terrifying and unpleasant and you get knocked around and your boat gets all beat up and you can't sleep. And in a storm, you can either be driven very far off course or very far in the direction you were trying to go, depending on how you navigate the storm. That's why Tim Keller says, it is possible for suffering to drive you like a nail into the heart of God. In times of suffering, our faith can grow like a teenage boy's feet, many sizes in one year. No, but seriously, we know that trials can mature our faith faster than anything else, don't we? But we also know it's possible to come out of a storm angry and bitter at God and far off course. Don't steer away from God in the storm of suffering. Go to him with your tears, your questions, your disappointments, even when they sound a little blasphemous. He can take it. And he wants to hear it from you to him. Even when it feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing back, they're not. Keep praying anyway. 
Even when your, your Bible seems empty, like there's nothing for you there, keep reading it. Keep going to God and keep wrestling like Job did. Keep trusting him. The worst thing that could happen, since we can't be abandoned by God, the worst thing that can happen to us isn't the thing you're afraid of, whatever that is, the diagnosis, the death, the failure. Worse than that is if we allowed our suffering to push us away from God far off course rather than drawing us to him. Let's pray. Father, you are just and you are good and we love you. Father, I pray tonight that you will use the tears that may blind our eyes to give us a clearer vision of your son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.